This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll. Because you can't make a song a hit. You just do the best you can. And then it kind of goes off and has its own life. And it lives or dies uh, on on its own merits. It just doesn't, we have almost no control over it. We can go out and we can play it and play it for people, but a song's going to do what it's going to do. It's like kids. They're like kids, <laughs> you know, they have their own personalities. They have their own trajectory. They have their own journeys. And all we can do is hope for the best and love them. And that's all we can do. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we drew the map. Lowell, it's time to introduce our guest here to Curious Creatures. I'm in Berlin. This lady was the voice of Berlin. It's none other than the delectable Terry Nunn. I read that when you first started out, Terry, you wished that you'd spent more time enjoying the ride. I mean, has that changed as uh, time's gone on now? It's so much more enjoyable, Lol. My whole life's more enjoyable. You know, I'm not so stressed out. I'm not... I was just stressed out all the time when I was younger. I was ambitious. I get that. And that is good for young people to be because we need that kind of energy to get anywhere. But I wasn't having as much fun because I was always like, well, but I haven't made it yet. And I I haven't done this yet. And I haven't done that yet. And I haven't achieved this yet. And I haven't gone over there yet. And I haven't done this. And it was just (laughs) constantly leapfrogging from one you know, to-do list, to another, you know, goal, to this, to that. And it's, it wasn't fun. It's, that's what I like about getting older. I like that I am relaxing and 
and I don't have to get to the next thing so fast. I can enjoy getting there instead of just being there for a few seconds. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful. I'll say something that, that you may or may not agree with. And I'd like to hear your opinion. Honestly, I feel that most musicians, myself included, get into music because we have social issues. It's hard to connect and we use music to create that bridge, to connect with people. I just noticed overall, I, I do see that, that it is a lot of musicians socially are a little, have a little more trouble than other people. Do you find that? It, it's weird because I because I was I was a social misfit really mm-hmm. before I joined the band. I mean, mm-hmm. I had friends. My friends were all the people that I made the band with, but we didn't fit in. And as soon as I get on stage, my heart rate goes down. I stop being anxious. You know, yeah. that, that's the place where I feel comfortable. Uh, it, it's therapy for me, and it's always been that way. Except when I was in my twenties. You know, I just sort of, I went from one town to the next town to the next gig to the next gig and just carried on. And I lived that life for 15 years. And at the end, it kind of destroyed me because I didn't know how to to live. And mm-hmm. I'm much happier now that, that I've been through all that. As, as you get older, you start to just, you start to care less about the stupid shit and you just yeah. deal with what life should really be. I could certainly uh, agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> of course, I did the uh, the strange move of um, I joined with the Banshees. Yeah. And then um, and then towards the m- late middle of that of the, of the, our time together, I we m- me and the singer married. So. Uh-huh. And we were always a kind of secret item from about two years after I joined the band. I, well, I suppose I realised that the music was everything, and mm-hmm. when the music s- stopped, as it did, it was really difficult to maintain such a long relationship mm. at that point. And I think then we had to really face up to what do we have and how mm. do we connect? Mm. And is that about love? And it's a, it, when I met with you when I was in LA 2007 I was I was like stripped naked and run like bouncing around going where do I fit in what am I doing here what do I do um, because the band I'd been with for 15 years plus and the person I'd been with for half of my life at that point and married to it was all coming to an end at the same time oh god but we're, we feel closer now than we ever could have. Yeah. Mm. Because now we have conversation and we share um, our feelings and our emotions honestly and, and truthfully as we can. Yeah. And, and that's mm-hmm. why we feel we've, we're in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of changes. I mean, I've remarried and I have two small children. All the things mm. that were never going to happen to me as far as I knew. And what a joy. For the first time in my life, I have, I suppose, responsibility and priorities over and above the band. Right. And Yeah, I'm, you've achieved enough that you can say, okay, you know, I made it. My family's comfortable now. 
So, mm-hmm. so there's no struggling here. So what do I want to do? There's more of a relaxed, a relaxed approach to it that I love. I didn't appreciate it when I was young. I, I just thought, you know, well, it's just always going to be there. Or of course we have the magic because it's because 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 we just do and we're going to forever. And that nope, <laughs> that didn't happen. <laughs> I, really, the most amazing thing to me, because it's so different than now, you know, where a, a families come to Berlin shows. I don't know if it's the same for you guys, but I never listened to my parents' music. They were playing like like 40s music. You know, this was this wasn't stuff that I would go to a concert with them and listen to it. You know, that wasn't cool. It, it had to be my music. Terry, when did you feel that you started to find your own musical tastes? Early on, because we had a chain of record stores, I, and I got to to run the cash register in the store and play anything I wanted while I was there. So I played everything. I played anything that interested me, and and it was fabulous. It was just like the best education you could possibly have, you know. Did you ultimately find that you gravitated towards something that was um, a little bit more out of the mainstream music and culture? Yes. When I saw the misfits in other bands growing up and seeing them and, you know, we had the records and we had the pictures and the records and the posters and, and magazines, we didn't have the internet, you know, so, but we had all this stuff that I could put up my walls and, and read the lyrics and, and feel connected to these people. And yeah, a lot of them didn't look perfect. And that's, I liked that about music. I didn't have to look perfect. I didn't have to be perfect. It, because in fact, the perfect people didn't tend to make it. it beca- maybe because people didn't resonate with them or relate to them like they did with the others who were not perfect. It seemed to be an advantage. The the ones that stood out were Jefferson Airplane because Grace Slick, when I saw her, I was like, oh, my God, she's a fucking goddess. That, that's exactly what I want because she was nothing like the other women going on at that time. She was like a guy. She was like, fuck you. I'm here and I fucking am badass. And and I'd never seen a woman do anything like that. It was great. It was powerful. It was irreverent. It was what all the guys did. But she did it. So that started it for me. Susie gets likened to uh, Grace Slick. Or oh, yeah. Lot, you know, and it's kind of interesting that I see early Susie. I see Susie as like, uh, I don't know how, what's the correct word, but it's very high, aloft disdain for everybody and everything. <laughs> disdain, that's it. <laughs> yeah, completely. Who the fuck are you? Go away, you know. And yeah. Don't expect me to come back out again. When I finish what I'm going to do, that's it. And and throw what you want. Mm. I don't care. And then, of course, the Beatles. And then I started really getting into more like Bowie and Pink Floyd and T-Rex. And, you know, from then on, I was just really into the whole glam rock scene. And then I got into you, but I got into goth rock. I just loved that whole world that came in in the 70s was to me just fucking great. It was just dark and it was sexy and it was 
it was fresh and it was progressive and it was it was wrong and it was everything I liked. <laughs> So, Terry, yeah. earlier you mentioned that part of the reason you got into music is because it was an entry into a world you couldn't access through normal social skills. Who were you before the band, and how did the band provide that entry into the world? Who was I before the band? Uh, I was driven. I did television work for a while. This show came along. I don't know if, if, if you know of it. It was called uh, Dallas. Dallas, of course. It had it had J.R. Ewing in it, didn't it? <laughs> J.R. Ewing. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the casting director knew me from something else. And I don't know how she managed to talk the producers into just hiring me. I went in to meet with them and they said, okay, this is a new show. It's a series. And you have to sign the seven-year contract. And do you want to do it? And I'm looking at this going, fuck, this is... This is this is a serious thing. It was the part that that Charlene Tilton eventually right. played the little blonde 16-year-old. That's that was the part. And I went home to my mom. I said, "Mom, you know, um I would really like to try this music thing. I don't know if I can do anything, but I I want to try it." And she said, "Well, Terry, you should try it then because you'll always regret it if you don't try." Yeah. So I, I, I called my agent and turned it down and he just said, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> this is like the biggest show in Miramax right now. It's going to be a hit. It could be a hit. And, and you're never going to get another job like this. You're never going to get another offer like this. He dropped me. I was gone. Like in a day, I was off their roster. It was over. And so now I had nothing. I was just, you know, a free agent. I had nothing to lose because I had nobody to work for anymore. And so, I said, okay, well, I'll give it a year. But I really wanted to try this music thing. And I wanted it so badly that it, it scared me because I thought if I'm not good at it, that's, that'll just be devastating. <laughs> and if I can't get anything going on, then I'll just, you know, maybe try going back to television or something. I don't wow. know. And it was a year later that I met John in Berlin. Terry, compared to acting on television and comparing that with singing in, in the band, did, how, did you know instinctively that singing in the band was the right thing for you to do at the time? Yeah, it's another world. I, I appreciate the, the, the work that I did in television because it taught me a lot. It taught me how to be a better singer because in, in, in acting – as you know, in music, you have to bring the emotion of what you're playing or singing in that song right now. Like when you're doing that song, you've got to feel it. Otherwise, nobody else will feel it. So it taught me to, you know, in a scene, it can be anything from, you know, a minute to 15 minutes. It can be whatever it is, whatever, you, whatever you're doing. And it taught me to bring that emotion because it has to be honest to right. that period of time at, on demand. And with a song, it's even shorter. It's like three minutes, right? So I've got to bring that emotion, whatever it was that it, that it brings up in me right now, we're playing it now. And uh, uh, to, to make it believable, to make it connect 
with people. So that that's what it taught me. And it was wonderful. But it's I'm, I'm so grateful to be a musician. It's 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 everything I love. It's it's still exciting to me. Did you have that inner dialogue when you were making those records with Berlin in the early days? Uh, you know, when you listen back to the vocal takes, how did you feel when, you know, was there, was there, did you always hear something that was flawed or that something that bothered you? Or did you just think, no, that's great. Wow. <sighs> I, I remember, <laughs> I remember being so efficient in, in when I was doing stuff in the studio because I wanted to be good at it and I wanted to get it done right. And I, I had the voice that could do that because I, I have good pitch. And so I didn't need a lot of guidance there, but I was no fun. I mean, I, God, I was just so, I, I didn't like studios to begin with. They're like airless man caves to me that just, you know, I just want to get in, do my job and get out of there. The reason that I do this is is for the connection with people in a room. I don't care how many. It's just a bunch of people together loving music and, and enjoying it together. That, for me, is the whole orgasm. That's why I do this. So in a studio, I just remember, like, you know, I didn't, I was scared mainly all the time. But but when I was in there, I would, I would keep doing it and do it right. And it was not fun. It was just done correctly and efficiently. And then, and I look at that now and I think, why didn't people want to continue working with me? Because I was no fucking fun. It was not (laughs) enjoyable at all. It was good. It was, you know, the result end result was good because the, the, the chemistry was there. And, 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 and we matched and we blended and we, we complemented each other so well that, the, that it, it did the magic happen. But now I wish that I just had more fucking fun with it, you know, and, and made it fun for other people because that's what people want. Mm. We all want to enjoy ourselves. You know, it's, it's, what else? Why else are we doing this? Terry, do you remember the first time you felt that magic? Yeah, I felt the magic the first time. Actually, the first time I heard John's music when he sent me the tape of what Berlin was, this was back in 1979. And I listened to this music and they had a singer. She was great, but she didn't want to stay in the band. She wanted a solo career and she went off and had a really good one. She was, uh, you know, Grammy nominated and her name was Tony Childs. But I'm listening to this going, this is fucking amazing music. I'd never heard anything like it. And so I went in and tried out and lied through my teeth that I had all kinds of experience. I was, you know, what, 18, 19, and I didn't have any experience, but I really wanted this. And, and for some reason they thought that, that I had something. And when we did the demos and I brought them home for people, what I heard, I just thought, this is magic. And then other people were listening to it going, what is that? That, who is that? what that that's really good and and i you know you can't make that happen you know somebody asked me the other day how did you know that you guys had that that magic because it's in the music right. you know you can like each other all you want but it's just something that shows up in the music you hear it and and you can't quantify it you can't figure out why it's there but it's 
there it, it's something about the the group of you together that's mm. creating something you could never have alone you could never do by right. yourself ah it's just it's it's a reason to live is this is it safe to say that after you joined berlin you had success that berlin hadn't had before oh yeah because they were just starting out so i got lucky because they would have made it with tony easily she had a great voice she had the presence it, you know it sounded amazing when i heard it mm. so i got lucky that she didn't want to you know she wanted her solo career she didn't want it to do what they were doing and uh, so i got the i got the chance to 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 be part of this and yeah so no i can't say they wouldn't have been successful without me but luckily i was a good choice as well <laughs> So if you were able to go back in time with the time machine to 1985, what would you tell yourself? It's all going to be okay. I would tell Terry in 1985, everything you want is going to happen. It, it does for people. We can have everything we want, just not all at once. So if you know, if you could only know that in your heart, that it's all going to be okay, you're going to get what you want and more than you ever dreamed of. And, and, and knowing that you can just relax and knowing, know that people are not scary. That was stuff in your past. Those people are not in your life anymore. And that's not the way most people are. And it's okay. Wow. And it's going to be okay. And it's going to be better than okay. If, 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 if I could have told her that, I think life would have been even better. And I'm still great. I'm so grateful for my life. Is that a tragedy? Would she have listened? Well, yeah, if it was me in the future. Ah. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Wouldn't you listen to you talking to yourself from the future? You've already lived it. So wouldn't you kind of listen to what you had to say? I suppose if I was back there, if I was back there and I said, who are you? And I said, I'm you from the future. <laughs> say, and, and everything's going to be okay. Would I have listened? Mm. Or would I still be that scared little boy who hadn't didn't know how to grow up? Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I spent my whole career looking over my shoulder and to the side of the stage and wondering how many drummers there were out there. It, it, every every time thinking, every time other drummers were around or other musicians, I thought, oh my God, they know what they're doing. I have no idea. And <laughs> when I'm playing mostly i was just so wrapped wrapped up and in, in the joy of it wow but one of the things i wanted to ask you uh, terry your your father died when you were very young when you were 12 13 mm -hmm. my my mum died when i was 12 13 mm -hmm. and there was no alcoholism involved in that part of the family but susie's father mm. died when she was 12 13 oh wow and, and he drank himself to death in the front room. Yeah. And I always wondered that Susie and I connected so deeply initially. What was, I was drawn to her before I even knew her, and, but not in a kind of fan way. I actually went home and made a, a sculpture of her because I was at art college, a, a little moquette, and I didn't stick pins in it, you know. <laughs> but... <laughs> I always wondered, but we never talked about it because we never really talked about this kind of stuff. Right. It was mm -hmm. there was there a turning point that certainly 
for me as a 13-year-old boy, I remember my first thoughts were, well, it doesn't matter now. She'll never know what I was going to do. Mm. Mm. Does that resonate? For me, it was different. I I shut down when he he also drank himself to death, but but he basically he he shot himself because he got so sick, he got cancer, blood yeah. cancer, and it, and he had no way out. It, and the liver was shot. He had jaundice. You know, it was terrible. And it was all because of the alcohol. So it, it was over for him. And, and I remember at 14, as soon as he died, I picked up a cigarette and I started smoking. And it was basically, now I look back, it was not just to look cool. It was to stuff my emotions down, not yeah. think about it, not deal with it. And the problem with that is that I thought that it was gone. But as soon as I had an intimate relationship with a man, which who became my first husband, all of it came rushing back so badly that it almost split us up. I mean, I, he would, he would lay on top of me in bed and I'd start screaming and I didn't know yeah. why I didn't remember. Yeah. I had, for, I had literally shoved it down so long. I didn't remember what happened. And he, my my first husband, Mark, said, Terry, I don't know what's going on and I don't know how to fix this and I don't know what to do. And I said, I understand. He said, we, we've got to work on this. And and I, and I, I got it. And so I went and got help and, and figured out with this therapist and a, a hypnotherapist who got me to the, to the memories so I could at least, you have to remember it, unfortunately, before you can do anything about it. Right. So she got me back to that time and what had actually happened in my childhood. And then I was able to work on it. It was awful. I mean, it, I can see why I didn't want to remember any of it. I just wanted it to go away. It was icky. It was fucked up. But it was necessary to for me to deal with it so I could have a relationship with a man. The regression therapy, did, was that early? Yeah, it was early on. Well, the, the hypnotherapist got me back to, how old did it come up? About eight years old is when it started happening. And and then, and then and it, and it, it didn't go forever. It went maybe a couple years, but so, then it went, it went away. And so how old were you when you started to get to the therapy? I was, when I met Mark, so I was 30, I was 32. It was when I quit smoking too. <laughs> and then that, that couple with him, all that awful emotion started coming oh up. My God. Oh, it was horrible. <laughs> oh, yours was, a, yours was a fun house. Oh, it was horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, but it had to, it had to be done. I had to deal with this shit to move I, forward with my life. You know, you were, you were 32. Yeah. Uh, I would have been 38 when I quit smoking and drinking. Okay. My, my wife, Susie, did not stop drinking and smoking. Um, we ended up in couples therapy, I remember, and we also had a regression session. Right. And uh. it's interesting. I, I would probably seek it now, even now, because I still have a vague memory of the night it happened when my mum died. And my first thought was, now I need to look after my dad. Right. Uh. And... I remember, okay, well, I've just cried, so that's it. 
I didn't cry until I was probably 38. Wow. And I just cried recently, like really cried where my body shook, you know, because my brother, my brother passed away just earlier on this year. And, and I said, turned to his widow, Diane, and I said, this is for my brother, Mike, but it's also for my mum. Right. Because, because I was, I was right back there in the crematorium where my mom went and uh, I couldn't feel a thing. I, yeah. I, I just thought, isn't this fun? We're riding in a big black car. Right. Um, yeah. And I wonder, I always wonder, because I couldn't feel. And right. yet when I was playing music, I, I obviously, I could. Yeah. Um, but there was perhaps, one, it, 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 it wasn't, it was like not quite, not quite real. Maybe that's what I'm trying to figure out. There was some kind of disconnect between what I was feeling in the music and what I would allow myself to be touched by, you know, how, how deeply I could I be touched. Right. And, and I think you just hit it, Budgie, that music is what helps us to feel. Sure. Because there was so much for all of us that we didn't want to feel. I did right. not want to feel or see or remember any of the shit that went on. Yeah. And but but we're human beings, and we we innately want to feel. It feels good to feel. It feels good to feel everything. Yeah. So the music is what was the key to open up my heart, you know, to feel anything. Right. Was it yeah. for you, Lal, too? Yeah, there came a point where I had suppressed everything so much, and, and music was the only time that I felt happy and able to feel free but mm-hmm. then the point where i was able to cry and it wasn't just crying for my mother or crying for you know my child that didn't live whatever it was crying for me i was able to cry for me i was able to yeah. feel, feel me you know and once, yeah. once that happened everything everything was so much uh, better and it's like you you've gone through it all so now this is like the extra gift. This part is the time that you get to have the real experience without any of that stuff and feel feel totally free, you know? That's a good way to put it. Yeah, this is the gift from all of that work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We we've earned it. <laughs> yeah. We're still Yeah, here. we have earned it, Budgie. We have. We have. We're still here. <laughs> So, the song, yeah. Take My Breath Away, it was a massive number one hit. How did that commercial success change your life? It did. It did. That song continues to change my life. It just never gives up. It never stops. It, 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 it seems to connect with people. It's one of those songs. I don't even understand it. And I, and I, I would love to hear from you guys the songs that were that way for you, because you can't make a song a hit. You just do the best you can. And then it kind of goes off and has its own life and it lives or dies on, on its own merits. It just doesn't, we have almost no control over it. We can go out and we can play it and play it for people, but a song's going to do what it's going to do. It's like kids. They're like kids, (laughs) you know, they have their own personalities. They have their own trajectory. They have their own journeys and all we can do is hope for the best 
and love them. And that's all we can do. So take my breath away. Was It just opened the world to us. Yeah. I mean, uh, what were the songs for you? Like you just... You, you just see this song like a child just just take off and yeah. you had no idea yeah I remember distinctly we we put out let's go to bed with just me and Robert and we made a video yeah uh, the video was on MTV had just started and they had to play us because they only had like five or six videos a week you know right guys with makeup and weird hair <laughs> and and I came back to LA we played the year before, we played like the whiskey or something, and it'd been okay. And then suddenly we came back and we played the Hollywood Palladium and there was girls. You know, up at that point it was like mysterious men watching us and like now there was screaming girls and I, I walked down stage looked at Robert and smiled. It was like, Yeah, this is it. This is great, you know. I don't know if we had it on not on the scale that you guys did. We the, our biggest, probably biggest hit in Britain would be "Dear Prudence," right? Mm -hmm. And "Dear Prudence" is a song that I, I'd grown up with. My brother had the Beatles' White Album, so mm -hmm. I, I I knew it back backwards. Uh, and I suppose it was a throwaway. We were doing an album. We thought we were in Sweden, and Robert Smith was with us. He was playing guitar with us, strangely, and. Um, it, it it was our biggest selling single. So the B side that we put on there got into you know a quarter of a million homes around Britain. Mm. And always though it was a kind of albatross because we had to play it all the time, right. and and it wasn't our song. Right. And I thought right. it's what it's what you give to the song. It's what you bring to the song. Right. The Beatles never had a hit with that song, and I'm sure many bands thought if we record a Beatles track, we're bound to have a hit. <laughs> mm. And and it failed so many times for so many people. So perhaps we did okay. Um, Terry did it. It also had a, not such a good effect on the band after a while. It wasn't the song though. We were already at each other's throats at that point. That was the third album, and right. it. You know, I look back on it, Budgie, and, and if we had just taken a break, you know, just told yeah. the record label, lay off us, we need to just get a life for a few months because they just wanted us to keep going. And we were kids and we didn't know we didn't know we could say to them no, you know, so it was like, make a record, get on tour, make a record, get on tour. And by the third album, we were just fucked. You know, it was it, it, and it, it, we were tired. That's really all it was. And we took it out on each other instead yeah. of taking a break and getting some perspective on this whole thing, taking a breath, we could have come back and continued. But now, now we've got this massive hit. So the record label's even more breathing down our necks. You know, <laughs> you got to get now. You're going to play the entire world and you're going to do it for five years. And, you know, we're already fucking tired. And, and so at that point, we're just turning on each other, literally yeah. in the band. Because we we were just fucked. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know how else to say it. I oh wish my. I had known that when now. I wish I could have seen what was really happening. Because it wasn't John's fault. It wasn't David's fault. It wasn't my fault. We, it was. We needed a life. I wish you know? that's that. That's what I would go back and and tell everybody if I could. Really. Yeah. Take a break. We, yeah. We did, take we, a we break. Did, 
We never did either, and it wasn't necessarily because we were. Uh, I had the the key song that we were wanted to push further. It was just when we were not in the studio, we were on tour. When we'd finished touring, we were back writing the next album. We never stopped. Oh. We were too young, and we couldn't. We had no uh, idea of empathy or anything like this to yeah. un- understanding. And we continued and continued right until the day when we did finally implode, except Susie and I didn't. And we continued and continued wow. until we hit that, that wall. Maybe that's what I would tell a younger version of me. Don't start doing this until you're 40. <laughs> <laughs> then you might have empathy. You know? You know, Budgie, I have a question. I'm not even sure how to formulate it, but I'm really interested in this because I wonder, you, you've you had such an illustrious career without the big, massive, number one hits. It, it, your, your bands have been just as revered and loved. Does it matter to you? Now that you look back and see what you've gotten from it, Without that, do you, do you miss it, or do you, is it like no? It was just as cool. Either way, I mean, I, I I'm happy. How oh, do you, you feel mean, about that? Do do look back and think, oh, we should, we deserved more, maybe. I don't know. I I just wonder because, you know, before all of our hits, we were we were an underground band in America that you know, Sex Ima was not played on a lot of stations, especially in the South of America. It, 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 the Metro was not a hit. It was, it was just played in certain air, you know, certain record uh, radio stations would play it, but it wasn't a hit, you know, we, but, it, but we, we had a huge following and, and I wonder, God, I mean, is it so important to have the hit? I, d- Be- I don't know. I think the, we were fortunate that we always had a, a, a kind of a good show. For yeah. every album. There was always a lead track that kind of, and they kind of got bigger. And certainly in, in the States, they did. And we really worked the States when we first started. We'd come every year, maybe yeah. sometimes twice a year to the United States. Yeah. And, and so I feel an, affili- an affinity with the yep. US because I, I mm-hmm. felt like that's kind of where I grew up. Right. Um, we kind of had, it seemed to be like, I don't know if it's self imposed, but there was a ceiling on the size of the gigs we would do. When we came over in 91 to do the first Lollapalooza tour, these were the sheds, and we were playing to huge audiences, not just us, of Mm -hmm. course. It was Jane's Addiction and Living Colour and all the guys on that first, you know, Mm -hmm. all the bands on that first Lollapalooza. And that was the first time we'd seen what other bands do, you know, when Mm. when they're playing on the road. And they complained more than we did, so we thought, well, we're okay. Yeah, you did okay. Because did okay, and but really, it's down to the fans. Really, the the, the fans were so loyal, um, mm. and it didn't matter how many of them were turned up to your show, as you just said. It was like they made it all all the the effort that it took to get there. Sometimes they made it all worthwhile. Terry, yeah. I, I felt like I knew you, but now I really feel like I know you. It's been lovely talking with you. 
Oh, thank you. Thanks I for having me, I hope we get to see each other sometime in the future. Yeah, let's play. When, whenever <laughs> we can again, let's do it. Love okay. to. First question in today, lol, on the fan question time. It's from uh, Guillaume Landry, or Landru, or Landre. I'm guessing he's French. Yeah, yeah. We, I think he is. <laughs> Guillaume asks, were we ever in fear of the drum machine taking over from the live drummer? And, of course, we were there when um, drum machines became the TR-808 and, uh, and all the variations started to kind of enter everybody's... Uh, first demos and early stages right and right. i also remember being fascinated and, and just really taken with like the early work of uh craft work for instance right and i don't know about you but my reaction to it, yes at first a little kind of concerned and then i thought if you can't beat them join them <laughs> i know i think you and i both would would, would agree that yeah we started to play like drum machines you know yeah, definitely me. I mean, I, I minimized everything and took it right down to, you know, the simplest that I could do with a lot of things. And a lot of people would think, you know, they listen to albums like pornography or whatever, and they think, well, some of that has to be a drum machine. There's one track on it, it's a drum machine, 100 years. Everything else is is me. But, you know, you learn to play uh, tighter, I guess. But that was not a real thing that I got from drum machines because you know, I, I really – like the idea that you could introduce other sounds rhythmically and you could, you know, manipulate those sounds. Uh, a lot of the first drum machines are based on samples. You could change some of those samples. Some of them are synthesizers, basically. And I, I just like the the idea of being able to make a rhythm out of any sound. So that was what I liked about drum machines. Mm, the, the, the drum machines I hated were the ones that tried to sound like drum kits. Right. Right. Yeah, so I I still love the, the, the first TR-808. I just love the sounds that I couldn't make. So they were great. And we used them. But we, we were still, in the early days, we were still not locked to a grid. We didn't have a click track, for instance. We were still, like, the drum machine would move around. Certainly the, the Roland Compu rhythms and things like this. Yeah. So I, I suppose it was good training for what has become the norm now in recording. Everybody's on some kind of Logic Audio Pro Tools grid. Yeah. The computer's destined, our destiny. Uh, it's arrived. And um, I think that's when, with the experience, you can push behind or forward of the click. And it's just, yeah. it's, it's putting, I don't know, more than just putting your feel over the top yeah mm. we, we, i think we can play play the machines at their own game yeah i mean i have a, I have a friend who who worked for a rather famous um drum machine company he told me that they started to put in a, a sort of extra algorithm code in the code to humanize their drum machines a little more and make them drift a little bit over the the set tempo so they would sound more like a person i mean yeah, which is kind of strange if you think about it, but yeah. 
Wasn't that the setting in uh, early versions of um, Steinberg's Logic or whatever it was called in those days, like Cubase, and then there was the humanizer button? Yeah, yeah, just like, uh, you know, a co bit of code to make a mistake. I suppose, you know, it, it's like, it really goes back to the whole thing is, were we uh, intimidated? Not on your Nelly, because <laughs> at the end of the day, uh, you know, a physical player adds something different. It's not the same as a drum machine. It's different. So that's that's what we you know we bring to the equation. And also, don't if you have a band, do not let anybody other than the drummer in your band program the drum machine, because guitarists and bassists always program it rather differently. A little haphazard. So Guillaume, in in a nutshell, the answer is intimidation. Never. Never. Right, so here we have a question from Ariel, who is from the Cure community in Argentina. Apparently, we have a community down there. Well, it sounds, that sounds cozy. That sounds very nice. Oh, very cozy. It's a question about the post-punk era. What change do you feel in the transition from punk to post-punk in terms of people's spirits, music, fashion, etc.? Well, I think it's a good question. Uh, for me... Yeah, you know, punk. Punk was very uh, explosive and uh, not so much nihilistic, but it was it was about a big change occurring. And then after that happened, we we had the impetus to do something. I mean, definitely the the punk gave the cure for sure. Uh, the the green light. Uh, Post punk was about taking some of what was good still from the past and and you know marshalling it to the the new sensibility of punk if you like i personally was in in liverpool kind of i suppose we we caught the beginnings of it with sex pistols and the clash they came to visit they played their their first gigs up that way in liverpool small part of england <laughs> and and then I kind of jumped ship. So I was down in London and, and meeting these people and, and working with some of them. So immediately, we, it, it had moved on. The tabloids grabbed hold of what punk should be, what they could um, manufacture it as. You know, when post-punk started, it was already underway. Wire were already recording. Right. I think, you know, while Eater were forming. So. Yeah. So if, if I can get a bit more metaphysical here, I think there's... Do, uh, do get more metaphysical. <laughs> there's, here, uh, here is my metaphysical friend, Loltol, has to explain the transition. Okay. Um, to me, you know, it was, it was all about um, change. You know, change has to happen constantly. That's one of the things that's certainty in life and it's also it's like it's the nature of the universe entropy you know once punk had exploded out into the universe it was going to just sort of kind of dissipate and get bigger and bigger and bigger and as it did it touched other aspects of the past and made what became post-punk so it, it's not a it, it's it's not a process that started and then everything else stopped and it moved on to something else it was constantly evolving and and that's my metaphysical explanation i rather like the metaphysical explanation i always liked the john, john peel's thing because as soon yeah. as like punk arrived john peel who was a like the pioneer the the, the how do you say it, lol what's he he was the, the, the he was a pioneer of all new music i mean when he started back in the sort of 70s he did all the 
prog music and stuff that nobody would play. And then punk came along and he did all of the punk. And then later when hip hop came along, he started playing all this left field hip hop. So yeah. he was great. Right, you know. He was the standard bearer, but immediately he, John Peel was like telling us where punk came from, or should I say the attitude came from. So it was the, the outliers of the early 60s that right. he started to go. The downliner sect were like, they're like punk from the vaults. Yeah. Um, it was a kind of a strange time. We were looking backwards and forwards. And Yeah. I think it's, you know, it was a time where there was, there was uh, a hunger to explore. It wasn't sort of nothing key, like what happened in the middle of the 70s, where there was a, a great sort of sea of apathy, you know. And uh, so it, it was a, uh, a great time to be a young man, for sure. Mm. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Vol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Spare. Social media, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas K. Music production, Jack Knife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com I love saying www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com And you can reach us on Instagram, Facebook <laughs> at Curious Creatures Official Twitter at Cure Creatures To find more of the best music podcasts visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram and at doubleelvisfm on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2021.